0: Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. This is Dennis, and today I have a special guest. Uh, Ian uh, is a uh, ER physician uh, attached to uh, SOCOM. And uh, the reason why I brought him on is his... Uh, experience in wilderness medicine Um, so ian if you could just a a quick introduction about yourself
1: um thanks dennis and and thanks for inviting me on Uh, so i'm an emergency physician uh, working at madigan Uh, worked there for quite some time and uh, just retired from the the military uh, where i ran the wilderness medicine program the mountain medicine program Um, in addition to being in socom for 18 years uh, involved in wilderness medicine uh, for more than 20 years. So that's the, the background, uh, that I bring to this.
0: So today I'd like to talk about, uh, spinal trauma. You know, obviously in a pre-hospital environment, uh, prolonged field care situation. But, um, so what, what is your initial approach when you suspect either because of the patient presentation or MOI? Um, how do you approach a patient like that?
1: So, the the initial approach is is still going to be utilizing MARCH. Obviously, those are going to be the most important interventions uh, that we're going to make. And most of the patients that we talk about are actually going to be multi-trauma. So, the spinal cord injury is going to be associated with other trauma and particularly hemorrhagic trauma. So, in addition to going through MARCH, I'm just going to emphasize a little bit more the uh, maintenance of C-spine precautions until I can decide... If I can clinically clear somebody from spinal injury um, or if I've determined that they have a high likelihood of one, in which case I'm going to need to try and protect them from further spinal injury during the evacuation or resuscitation process. But again, one of the keys is going to be that with most of the traumas we're dealing with, um, if somebody has hypotension or multi-trauma, we need to make sure that we address hemorrhagic causes first while maintaining C spine precautions before we even start considering that spinal cord injury is part of abnormal vital signs that we see in the patient. Uh, once okay. I'm going through the, going through the march and the association sort of, of a person and I've gotten through that, then as part of the secondary survey, I'm going to try and figure out if I can clinically clear the patient from spinal cord injury. And uh, as part of that, we am going to need to do a uh, neuro exam. And that will help me determine if I can decide that somebody doesn't have a spinal cord injury and doesn't need protection or is, remains at high risk of it and does need spinal cord protection. There's actually a couple of well-validated methods of clinically clearing somebody's C-spine. In, in North America, those are the NEXUS criteria and the Canadian C-spine criteria. The uh, Joint Trauma System actually has their flow chart for clinically clearing a C-spine, uh, which is essentially utilizing a nexus criteria, then followed by determining if you can have the patient move their spine uh, 45 degrees in multiple planes. And if uh, they can do all that, then you can clear the spine at least a cervical spine from injury. And with that, you don't need to uh, protect them, makes care and transportation and evacuation much easier. The clearing the rest of the spine essentially follows the same clinical criteria. Uh, so, for uh, Nexus criteria or the joint trauma system criteria to clear a C spine, um, you need to answer four questions. Uh, and if the answer to all of them is no, and then you can have the patient turn the head 45 degrees in four planes, left, right, up, and down. If they can do that, then you can clear the, the C-spine. So the four questions are, is the patient altered in any way? Uh, to even uh, pursue clinical clearance, the patient has to be GCS 15 and with it. Um, next question is, do they have any new neurologic findings? So if they have new paresthesias or paralysis they didn't have before the trauma, uh, then that would be a positive. The next is, do they have a distracting injury? And distracting injury is some other injury that's painful enough that they focus on that to the exclusion of almost everything else. And typically, we consider a long bone fracture, um, an amputation, something along those lines to be distracting, whereas we consider abrasions, minor lacerations, not to be distracting. Uh, this part can be a little bit subjective and really is dependent on the, the medical provider to decide if the injuries that they have, can the patient focus on the exam that you're giving them and exclude any other symptoms that may be having. And then the final question is, does the patient have midline bony tenderness? So you're palpating down the posterior portion of the C spine, pressing over the spinal processes and determining if that elicits reasonable pain. Uh, for the remainder of the spine, you're going to do the same thing. You're going to do a head to toe neuro exam and you're looking for any paresthesias paralysis and then any point tenderness anywhere along the spine that uh, elicits reasonable pain. If you can get through all that, then you can clear it. It's when you can't answer no to all of those questions that you then need to protect the the spine during transport and treatment.
0: Okay. So when you talk about the neuro exam, are you talking a full head to toe, you know, sharp, dull, hot, cold, or are you talking more about like a more of a mini kind of like a gross neurological exam?
1: So, so we can do a relatively gross one. Uh, there's, a, if you go through the joint trauma system, they actually have what's called a combat neuro exam. And it's very similar to actually the, the rapid neuro exam that's done uh, for dive injuries. So anyone that's a DMT out there, if you do your DMT exam on somebody, which you obviously can do fairly rapidly, that's going to cover everything you need. But really, all we need to do is we need to cover the 10 major uh, motor areas. So we need to do a, a rapid motor exam of the 10 areas. We need to do a head-to-toe light touch and uh, sharp test. We then need reflexes and uh, the bubble cavernosis reflex is probably the one thing that's a little bit different than the regular neuro exam. And that's obviously, we're going to do that once we're worried that somebody does have a, a spinal injury. So you can you can do that exam, the, the combat neuro exam or DMT neuro exam very rapidly. And I think a, a lot of the listeners are familiar with that.
0: Now in the spectrum of spinal cord injuries, you have you know, maybe some light paresthesias, you know, all the way out to, like, a, a complete transection of the spinal column. Um, you know, obviously, the lighter side, you know, treatment is essentially stabilization and transport. Um, but, I guess, how do you determine to what grade a spinal spinal trauma is? Is that solely from the uh, neuro exam?
1: So, the the... The neuro exam is going to give us an idea of the grade, but until we have imaging, really what a positive finding tells us is that we need to protect them from further injury. Uh, it will depend on whether the the injury is stable or unstable, but what our goal is is that even if there's a minor finding, it may represent a more significant injury that's unstable and could get worse without treatment. So, So our goal pre-hospital is just to determine that there is a spinal injury, uh, document the findings we have so we can follow those along with subsequent neuro exams. But really, once we decide there's a spinal injury, that's our stop point. We know we need to protect them from risk of further injury.
0: Also, another complication of spinal trauma is neurogenic shock. So I guess at, at what level are we starting to worry about or what level on the spinal column are we starting to worry about uh, the risk of sp- uh, neurogenic shock?
1: So the, the higher the level of spinal cord injury, the higher the risk of neurogenic shock. But a, a good number to remember is that anything below T6 is really not going to cause neurogenic shock. So we're starting to be concerned about it at T6 level and up. Um, and again, the higher the level, the higher the likelihood is of neurogenic shock because you have a greater likelihood of interrupting the sympathetic tracks uh, that lead to it. Uh, But another important thing to remember is that so so T6 is the one to remember. If you have hypotension with a spinal cord injury, uh, T6 or below, it's from something else. It's not from neurogenic shock. And again, always during our evaluation, since these are almost always going to be multi- system traumas, we need to rule out and treat hemorrhagic shock as the primary cause of hypotension before we turn to treatment of neurogenic shock.
0: And I mean, that just goes with our MARCH algorithms. Uh, obviously, you can have internal bleeding, or you would need a, maybe a fast exam or, or just doing a very good survey with hypotension could lead you down that road. Um, but let's say you don't have any of the You don't suspect internal bleeding. You don't have any external hemorrhage. We do, we do have, uh, hypotension. Um, with, uh, let's see. We do have, uh, hypotension and we're suspecting, you know, a, a higher spinal column injury. Um, so I guess does that just, um, by excluding hemorrhagic shock, does that lead you down to must-be-neurogenic shock?
1: So, it, it definitely pushes us more in that direction. And it, and if we get to the point where we're, we suspect a spinal cord injury, um, our exam is negative for uh, major bleeding into the body, particularly if we have several negative FAST exams and so forth, then we can start looking into treating uh, neurogenic shock. Now, the other... The other part of that is, is even if it's a mixed picture, we're going to be looking at trying to get our blood pressures higher than they would necessarily be just for hemorrhagic shock if we have a concomitant spinal cord injury. Uh, but first for the, if we get to the point where we've ruled everything else out or we treated it and now we're worried primarily about neurogenic shock, uh, then we do need to start uh, treating that. And the initial approach is going to be uh, IV fluids. And this is a, a point where crystalloids can be reasonable. Uh, what we're trying to do, because neurogenic shock is a distributive shock, it's essentially vasodilation and pooling of blood, we're trying to, to get the tank filled up, so to speak. So we'll give uh, 250-500 cc boluses of a crystalloid uh, up to two liters uh, basically as a a maximum. What can really guide this well is if you happen to have an ultrasound and know how to do an IVC measurement, um, you can use IVC measurements as a uh, de facto estimation of uh, central venous pressure. So if you know how to do a fast exam, get someone to teach you how to measure the IVC, because that can be really useful determining if you've given enough uh, IV fluid to to fill up the tank essentially. If you don't have that, or you've gotten to the the two liters of fluid and you're still hypotensive, then that's when we're gonna need to start thinking about adding a vasopressor uh, to maintain blood pressure, and also considering atropine the typical classic picture of neurogenic shock is hypotension and bradycardia. So if somebody's reasonably bradycardic, you know, a heart rate of 40 or 50, um atropine can be useful also because we're we're targeting getting their heart rate up to the between 60 to 100 sort of in that normal range. Uh for the neurogenic shock itself, we're trying to get their blood pressure up to a mean arterial pressure of 85 to 90. Uh, So the the old classic uh, teaching was, you know, try and keep the systolic uh, above 90. Uh, Now the goal is probably to keep it somewhere in that uh, 100 to 110 systolic range, um, not wanting it to ever drop below 90 and certainly trying to maintain your mean arterial pressure in that 85 to 90 range. You can measure urinary output also, but since that's kind of a measurement over time, um, I really like to, this is one case where I really like to track the blood pressure and make sure it doesn't drop below uh, 95-ish or so.
0: Right. Um, is neurogenic shock, is this something that's going to progress very rapidly, or is this something that may or may not present itself, you know, immediately, maybe something that develops more over time?
1: So, it, uh, it typically will come in within uh, minutes to a half hour to a half hour afterwards, uh, but it can Come on even a little bit later than that. It uh, really depends on the level and how much of the sympathetic chain is affected and when. Um, and if the spinal injury is getting uh, progressively worse, for example, due to a demon and so forth, you get more cut off. So usually it happens, you know, within the first, uh, several minutes, half hour, an hour of a spinal cord injury, but it can come on several hours after that. And then okay. it, uh, it lasts for a prolonged period of time. Now, we probably should also mention uh, neurogenic shock versus uh, spinal shock, uh, which is another term that you hear used commonly. Uh, spinal shock is actually not really a shock so much as it's a, a neuropraxia of the spinal cord or a stunning of the spinal cord because of injury. And that's the reason that we do the bulbocavernosus cavernosis reflex as part of the neuro exam. The bulbocavernosus cavernosis reflex is a local reflex. So if that doesn't exist, then that suggests that you have spinal shock or spinal stunning going on. And if that's the case, then you may get some recovery of the spinal deficits that the patient has. Usually by the time that uh, spinal shock resolves, in which case the bubble cavernosis reflex is intact, then that means you're probably not going to get much recovery beyond that point. Uh, But you often hear those terms used interchangeably, spinal shock and neurogenic shock, and just need to reinforce that they're, they're different. Neurogenic shock is an actual shock, a distributive shock, whereas spinal shock is a, more of a spinal stunning or neuropraxia.
0: Because it's something that may progress over time, this neuro exam, you know, the, the rapid neuro exam, this is something you're going to have to do what, every half hour or um, just do if you suspect this person could have had uh, some kind of spinal trauma. Something you're going to want to do serially to keep on top of it?
1: Yeah, it's a you know, I think that, that will become more operationally relevant how often you can do it. Uh, but certainly if there's a change in the person and uh, certainly anyone that I suspect spinal trauma in, so I've gotten to the point where I can't clear them, I'm worried about spinal injury, then I definitely want to be doing uh, subsequent neuro exams to be tracking what direction it's going, uh, is it getting worse, and so forth. Uh can't really put a specific time on it. I would certainly say if there's a change in the, the patient's status, uh and then operationally as much time as you have, you know. If you're getting ready to log roll a patient uh during your nursing care and you haven't done one in a couple hours, probably should go ahead and do one then.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So, you know, we suspect that he's got some uh
0: neurogenic shock. We start resuscitating with our crystalloids up to two liters. Um, is that because if we're just continuing giving them fluid that it increases his risk for pulmonary edema or is it after two liters if that doesn't work then it's not gonna work with three or four?
1: No, exactly, it's because of the our concern for risk of actually overhydrating hydrating them and, and increasing their risk of uh, pulmonary um, edema. Uh, certainly, with neurogenic shock, you know we we cut the sympathetic chain, but you can also get a sympathetic discharge um, with that, and that can increase your lung permeability um, a little bit. But really, it, exactly as you're saying, it's because we're worried about uh, increased risk of pulmonary edema as we go over that, and and that's why the the ultrasound, if you know how to measure an IVC, can be useful. Um, you know, if you have small IBC measurements with a lot of collapse with respiratory, uh, for those that, that learn how to do it, you know, that tells you that maybe you could use a little bit more fluid than the two liters, uh, but if you don't know how to do that and uh, you don't have an all or you don't have it all sound, then really we have to kind of use the two liters as our guide.
0: Okay. Um, as far as pressors, epi, atropine, is there uh, any one that's better than the other?
1: So the the hospital recommendations uh, usually go with dopamine first, um, then uh, norepi, uh, then occasionally Uh Although the reality is, we're probably not going to have any of those in the pre-hospital setting. So epi is what we're going to have and uh, have to use. Uh, so really, it just ends up being operational necessity if you had dopamine that would be my first choice Uh, but honestly i would there's very few times i can think of i would ever have had dopamine in a in a pre-hospital setting
0: um also in in the cpgs and in a few of the online resources you know i've seen things about uh, compression dressings trying to use that outside pressure to collapse their vasculature um you know i'm only carrying so much fluid and 2 liters might be all of the crystalloid that i have if even if i had that much um is that is that a good thing to do or is that uh setting myself up for failure
1: so the you know the the risk benefit of that so the risk is so the benefit obviously is if we can provide external compression maybe we can uh, cause some vasoconstriction uh, for example in the legs and and try and decrease some of that venous pooling uh, the risk to that, of course, is then, you know, we may be increasing our risk of, uh, thromboembolic events, DVTs. So if, if that's the only option you've got to try and do something, um, and you're going to go that route, then I think you need to do something at the same time to mitigate the DVT risk, uh, which if we don't have a low molecular weight heparin or something like that, which we're probably not going to have, then you're really going to add into your nursing care, you're going to need to do frequent sort of manual uh, sequential compression where you're massaging the legs from the bottom up, just as if you were a mechanical uh, sequential compression device. Uh, But I I haven't seen any good literature uh, to address that risk versus benefit. So that's sort of going to be a last choice uh, that I would use. Uh, do we have right. options for other fluid sources? Uh, so yes, uh, with spinal cord injuries, it the GI you can sometimes get an ileus in the GI tract. If you don't have an ileus, then you still have that option of trying rectal fluid for volume hydration. Uh, so if you you know when you do your secondary exam on the patient, if they have normal bowel sounds, then we know they don't have an ileus, and if they don't have an ileus, then that would be an option. Uh, that you could try as well. If you don't have any bowel sounds or markedly decreased bowel sounds, then you're probably not going to absorb any, so that's probably not going to work.
0: Okay. Um, Other than DVT prevention, um, what other nursing care becomes really important with with spinal trauma? Uh,
1: So certainly uh, pressure injuries are going to be something we're going to have to uh, really highlight. You know, with uh, particularly with no scent with uh, lack of sensation, you're not going to have a reflex movement. So we really need to make sure that we're we're moving our patients every couple hours uh, to decrease skin breakdown, pressure injuries. We're really going to need to pad the bony prominences uh, to decrease that, and uh, really just go back to rolling them at least every two hours. Um, now people always do get concerned a little bit, you know, Are am I at risk of further injuring the spine, log rolling a patient, uh, moving them? And it's been pretty well shown that with uh, standard, safe log rolling techniques, uh, you're not at risk of causing further harm. Uh, Now, the other thing that you can do is, so log rolling, if you have a limited number of individuals, uh, there's also been a push recently to uh, move away from log rolling to lift and shift Individuals if you have to move them, and if you have a large number of individuals, uh, four to six individuals, some people say six, but you know certainly with four of the lighter person, uh, you can probably actually get less c spine movement by lifting somebody and then shifting them or moving them.
0: Is that lifting like on a on a sheet or
1: uh, no interlocked uh, uh, in, that's uh, just utilizing you know people uh, reaching underneath. Uh, basically covering the the whole axial skeleton of the person as they move them. Uh, some of the uh, some of the other concerns uh, with uh, spinal cord injuries uh, certainly need to we need to keep an eye on them for pulmonary issues. Um, obviously, if it's a high C spine fracture, then the diaphragm's not going to work, and we know we need we're going to need to take their airway um, and do something to maintain them. But even down through the thoracic spine, you know you're going to lose some of the intracostal, use and so forth. So, the patient uh, is going to be at r- increased risk of respiratory uh, issues. So, we definitely need to to monitor them for respiratory complications. And uh, if possible, we do want to try and help with that with you know, elevating the, the patient up to that 30 degrees, which can be difficult to do. But if that's uh, possible and we're worried about respiratory complications, we want to move in that direction. Uh, the other thing, of course, is if they they have neurogenic shock is they're at an even in, even greater risk of developing hypothermia. Uh, because the distributive shock, you know, the vasodilated, they can lose a lot of heat through the vasodilated uh, skin. So we really want to take great efforts to prevent hypothermia in them as well. Uh, certainly everybody in hypo, in, uh, with a spinal cord injury should have a fully placed and, uh, NG tube placed as well just because there is that uh, risk of developing ileus as a consequence of the
0: so essentially you're running your resuscitation just like you would for a tbi except you're not using hypertonic um but as far as goals you know your systolic systolic roughly around 100 um a little bit more is if you can get away with it if they're not bleeding um because from what i understand you're trying to resuscitate so that later on they don't have a second hit from a reperfusion type injury is that correct
1: yeah exactly we're uh, we're trying to resuscitate them so we i mean we need to maintain some perfusion in them uh, but we don't want them to have a subsequent another subsequent ischemic hit within reperfusion after that um, so certainly, you know, if they're initially hypertensive, they're going to have that, they're going to get some reperfusion when we, when we bring their pressure back up. But we don't want them to have another subsequent ischemic and then reperfusion, um, on top of that initial one. So there, we're, we're trying to maintain perfusion. And that's why that 85 to 90, um, map is the goal. Although that can be hard to figure out if you have to do the math yourself, um, on the spot. But if you have a monitor that shows you map, that's great. Uh, but that's really why. You know, I don't like the systolic pressure to get uh, below that uh, 95 to 100 before I really start intervening. And, you know, a lot of the folks now will say, you know, aim for a systolic of 110 range so that you never fall below a map of 85 to 90.
0: Is there anything that you would... Uh like to add or that we forgot from the last time?
1: Uh, Probably, again, just reiterate, uh, certainly if it's below T6 and they're hypotensive, it's not neurogenic shock, and then always look for the neurogenic shock first. And then I think the one thing we didn't talk about yesterday was you know, in the uh, late 90s, early uh, 2000s, there was a big push to give uh, steroids to spinal cord injuries. Okay. And there's still a little bit of mixed literature now, but the The basic impression is, is that the risk is far greater than the benefit um, from it. So that's why we don't uh, recommend steroid use at all anymore at this point.
0: As far as the risk because of infection later on or?
1: Uh, It's, it's actually a a multitude of issues, uh, infection. increased uh, gastric bleeding, uh, stress ulcers, uh, there's actually a whole host of other complications, um, adrenal suppression and everything else that will develop um, uh-huh. because of it. And and the most recent evaluations of all the studies basically says, yeah, the risks are far greater than the benefits. And that's why the the joint ser- the JTS guidelines don't recommend use of steroids. Well, uh, thank you
0: very much, Ian.
1: Thanks, Dennis, and I'll see you sometime soon. All right.
0: That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.